folks, we're starting to get the 2023 late year-end reports in, and it wasn't great for consumer and business finances. The full hit from the tighter monetary policies is still on its way, and we haven't seen the huge fallout from the stock market yet, which had a great 2023. I would probably call it 2024 to be on the lookout for that, as we start to see the fallout hit the Wall Street stocks out there. So some parts of the economy are definitely heading into rougher waters. Wholesale trade in the United States is already in a recession phase, and industrial production is teetering on that edge too. Retail sales and non-defense capital goods are likely to dip soon. But here's the key point here. Not all the markets will suffer. We've already seen the real estate sector, housing sector go down into the trough and poised to come right out of it as it leads the other industries since when they jacked up interest rates that really hurt the commercial real estate sector. If you check out this week's newsletter, we've got a cool graph of the cyclical sign curve and all these industries put on that graph for you guys to see. The source for that is ITR Economics. And I'm quoting from them, we're looking at a potential economic rebound in 2025 and 2026, but don't be too late to jump in now because they're also calling for a late 2026 growth might just start to slow down. Meaning if you're not one who's in the game playing, you're going to miss out on this big bounce off the bottom, especially if you're in the real estate sector. Something semi-unrelated to announce, we're seeing the Disney characters, Mickey Mouse and Tigger, you know, remember a lot of those iconic characters on that known as Steamboat Willie and also Tigger are coming out of the copyright restrictions and into the public domain. Now, this is a significant shift. And for the first time in 95 years, this creative work of these beloved characters and stories from 1928 are free for reinterpretation on various platforms. And the reason why I'm talking about this is it's a form of intellectual property. Now, in current laws, intellectual property is considered protected for 95 years in this case, but it eventually goes away. And this is the big difference between large buildings and especially real estate and more importantly, land. And that's something we're exploring now, land royalties. And I guess the saying is nothing is forever. Of course, you know, if you're educated and you can diversify into different sectors and especially have enough money to get into the sector such as real estate, you can you know, really hold on to your wealth long term. And we're also exploring investing in businesses, which in turn, are very much higher return, but they certainly don't last 95 years. Some don't even last a 5-10 year cycle, but they make great money in, in the meantime. So not to say that these are bad investments, but just very different. And just wanted to outline everybody to, to be aware of some of those nuances. Now, I don't know if we're going to see a Winnie the Pooh horror film out there, but just something for everybody to think about. Nothing is forever. Not even Winnie the Pooh, Tigger or Mickey and Minnie Mouse. With that, enjoy the podcast. We did a webinar with a bunch of you guys asked great questions of the CPAs. If you guys are ever looking for a referral and now's a great time to be looking for one, please join our club at thewealthelevator.com slash club and send our team an email and enjoy the show. All right, welcome everybody. We wanted to just get everybody aligned with some real high level tax questions put in your questions into the question and answer box. So we're going to be talking about active versus passive income, a little bit of 101 on the tax side from that real estate professional status and the 750 hour rule, 
And then we'll go into short-term versus long-term rentals and then the short-term rental loophole there. Normally, I'm spewing tax and legal advice alone when I really shouldn't. But of course, I always tell you guys to get your professionals on the line with you. But I brought mines. I came equipped with my team here. But why don't you guys introduce yourselves real quick? I actually bought real CPAs on the line here to help the with the plethora of questions we get. Awesome. Thanks, Lane, for the introduction. Hi, guys. I'm actually a uh, business development here with uh, the Unified Global Group. Um, before I have uh, handed over to the true CPAs and the tax advisors, that will definitely be facilitating uh, these questions. I wanted to give you guys a little bit of an overview of our firm, how we positioned ourselves, and be able to assist a lot of clients like yours, syndications, just starting out all the way to retirement. So for just a quick Spio here for Unify Global. We're a business solution firm focusing on consulting and outsourcing. The tax side of things is really our tax accounting and audit is really our bread and butter. And we really emphasized our tax planning and advisory side. In the most recent years, we've had a lot of clients, including Lane's group as well, with syndications. Um, so we're very familiar with those type of industries. And like what Lane mentioned, we wanted to provide you guys some training or kind of education in terms of some one-on-ones, things to be aware of, things to consider as you move up in the syndication ladders or even looking to retire. just That's just a quick background about ourselves. I do want to hand it over to Fook. He's also one of our leaders who specializes in individual tax, and we also have RV after that as well. Hello, I'm Fook, and I'm, I've been a tax advisor for 17 plus years now. Right now, my role is actually training new tax advisors, teaching them how to explain things to clients in a more clear manner. So hopefully I could answer all of your questions later and you know, go through more of the details. Hi, everyone. My name is RV. I'm the tax partner of Unified Global. I have more than a decade of experience doing mostly uh, tax advisory services and financial audit. And I've worked with some of you guys. I think if you are, most of you are familiar with me. I'm the one who are coordinating with you last week of December, asking you to pay your kids to save taxes. And <laughs> I'm looking forward to help you more when it comes to your general questions later. Before we get going, of course, we have CPAs here, but None of this should be taken as personal advice or tax legal advice for your personal situation. For that, we urge you guys to get a hold of us to connect. And for example, if RV likes you, he may allow you to go buy a boat to <laughs> start your new fishing company and maybe possibly get some deductions that way. But with that, yeah, let's start off the, at the high level for folks, right? You get into alternative investments. Why? Because now you have passive income. But why is that important in terms of what is active versus passive income? Who's going to take that one here? I could take it. So pretty much the way I like to explain income to people is I put into different buckets. And I like to use visuals. I'm, that's usually how I like to explain things to clients. I'd like to have buckets when I explain these things. And there's different buckets. There's going to be buckets for like wages, W-2 income, if you're self-employed. There's buckets for selling stocks. There's buckets for passive as what Lang was talking about. These are usually rentals or royalties. And then there's a retirement bucket. So though each bucket is actually taxed a little differently and treated differently for taxes. So it's just easier to separate out in buckets to help understand it. For example, when it has wages, these are subject to Social Security and Medicare tax, which is the, an extra tax that you have to pay just for working, while the passive bucket actually doesn't have that Social Security uh, tax that's associated to it. And the reason why I like to explain buckets is because usually if there is a profit or a loss, it could only go against the same 
items inside the same bucket. For example, you have rental property in the passive bucket right here. Then that means that if you have a rental loss, you could only use the loss usually against rental profits, depending on what your income is. That's usually the general rule. So that's the main big difference when it comes to say active. So active would be the ordinary part because this is where you're actually actively working and passive would be where the income just coming in where you're not really working hourly or anything like that for it. it just keeps you just make the money in a way overnight yeah so i think one one common misnomer or at least when i work with clients there's a little bit of a confusion over like active versus ordinary income maybe sometimes those terms get confused but is in the tax code it's called ordinary right not necessarily active or Correct. Yeah, it's, it's called ordinary income when it comes to like wages and things like that. You might be referring to maybe being an active investor, which is different, could be different from ordinary. And yeah, we can go maybe, through that later maybe, too. Yeah, maybe let's dig into that a little bit. So there's some, there's a misnomer I've heard is like some investors, they feel because they're getting passive losses from under K-1s, some of these syndication deals, or maybe they have a rental where they're depreciating and they're passive, that they don't feel like they can take it against passive income and active income. Maybe you can set the record straight. If there's that. passive losses, it could go against passive income. So if there's passive losses from one rental, but you have profits on another rental because they're all in the same buckets, then those could go against each other. And I, I want to be very clear with this because some clients, they'll go talk to their CPA, which 90 something percent of our clients tend to change their CPAs once they find a lot of these alternative investments, that CPA will tell them, no, you can't use the passive losses from this deal to offset another passive income on another deal or rental property. Sorry, uh, say that again? They're, the CPA is saying that you can't use the passive losses from one deal to offset other passive income on another. Yeah, you should be able to if it's in the same bucket. If you're talking about like dividends or interest, then that's in a different bucket. Technically, it is passive income, but the IRS considers that inside a different bucket. So it's not part of the rental bucket. So pretty much you have to see it as rental property going against other rental property. Or a, a passive losses from a syndication offsetting or, the, or rental property. It's a, if it's an income from a syndication deal, compared with a loss from a syndication deal, they could offset each other. So you can't use passive losses to offset ordinary income. The ordinary income being Correct. your W-2, 1099, 10 different buckets, going back to Fuchs buckets, unless you have magical or real estate professional status. Maybe let's let's talk about that a little bit for folks. Yeah, so when it comes to real estate, there's actually four different categories when it comes to real estate investment. Let me share my screen again with this other visual that I made. Okay. So I usually share this with clients. This is an infographic that I created and it just talks about the different types of, I guess, real estate investors that you could be categorized as. And the most common is active investors. So this is what might be what Lane was talking about, where you actually own the rental property itself and you rent it out yourself. You're the manager, you find the tenants, you do the repairs, things like that. So that's usually the active investor. But then what Lane, what you're bringing up is the real estate professional, which is the third criteria. And it's a little harder to qualify for because there's a lot of rules that you have to qualify to qualify for, but there are two main rules that I always point out to clients and that's you have to have a total of 750 hours 
that you are working on the properties itself. And also it has to be more than your working, your rate, your other working hours, meaning that if you have a full-time job, you won't qualify for a real estate professional. So that's the general rule. And usually if you only have one or two rental properties, you probably won't qualify because to get 750 hours a year, that's about 14 and a half hours a week. Usually for re- one or two rental properties, you're not going to meet that qualification unless you're really like there all the time to build the house from top to bottom or something and, like that. And certainly it can't be like two turnkey rentals a thousand miles away. That's not going to fly. That that will be harder to qualify because you have to actually work on the property to qualify. So yeah, so if they're a thousand miles away, it probably wouldn't work out. But there is this other rule. If you're married filing joint, it's very possible that if only one spouse works, then the spouse that is not working might be might have an easier chance to qualify as a real estate professional. But you also just got to make sure you reach the 750 hour rule. So these are the top two rules to qualify a real estate professional. And the reason why you want to do this is because as a real estate professional, if there are losses, you're allowed to use these losses against your ordinary income, which is your W-2 wages or If you are self-employed, then your 1099 weight income as well. The only reason why you want to qualify for real estate professional is if you want to be able to take these large losses in your rental property. And this is where I'll give the guidance to a lot of people. If you're married filed jointly making over $380,000 or so, and you're in those little bit higher tax brackets, then it makes a lot of sense to go after this real estate professional status, at which then you talk to your CPA. Of course, as you can see, CPAs are all over the place. So you really want to find folks that want to go on this storyline with you here. Yeah, Um, a lot of CPAs and what I find is usually the older ones, they don't like the real estate professional status. They actually try to get their clients not to claim it just because they think that there's a higher chance of getting audited. The qualification is really hard to qualify for. So there are a lot of CPAs who don't like filing for this for their clients. You just got to make sure that you do find a a CPA that will that's able to understand this and will go through the questionnaire with you to make sure that you do really do qualify instead of just brushing it off saying that oh I don't want to deal with it or it's you might get audited. If if your CPA says that you might get audited, then that's a bad CPA because they shouldn't be scared of being audited. They should be able to win the audit if there is an audit to begin with. I'm going to bring Jess off mute here real quick. Jess is in our (laughs) FUM group, but I'll let you ask it. Actually, I have a question directly related to the reps thing. The initiation of the reps with the jumping the hoops, that's one thing. But the second thing is that you have to aggregate all of your long-term rentals or your passive rentals, correct? Not really. That's another way if it's beneficial to you. If you aggregate all of your passive rentals at the end of the day, it will be at a loss. Then that would be the best way. However, you could also do it separately and classify each property which you are managing actively. So my suggestion is if it's not beneficial to you to aggregate everything, just consider the other properties that you are managing that, that generates as a loss turn them into an active when you are a real estate professional so that you could take over. The loss can be carried over to your active income while the properties that generate passive income stays as loss. And can that active income, like so hypothetically, let's say I have $500,000 worth of losses in 2023 and I make $250,000 every year and my spouse is a reps and five, we take 
we we capture the five thousand uh, dollar active loss now. It's become active now because my husband is reps. Can that I can only offset a certain amount of active income? Does the, then can I roll the rest over? Yes. So next year, that's the good thing. This is just based on what you've uh, described, Jess. I haven't seen your tax return, but based on what you've given me, uh-huh. so the remaining three hundred thousand now are considered as net operating loss, not net capital loss. Which means any active income that you will generate. Next year can be offset to that net operating loss. So it will just carry over until okay. such time that you exhaust it. Thank you. But even, just to clarify, even if my husband does not do reps in 2024 or 2025, but he was reps in 2023 where we were able to capture that? Yes, correct. It still rolls over. Yeah, okay. for as long as the source is active, it still rolls over. However, you cannot claim more losses if your husband is not rep status this year or next year. Correct, for that year. So when you qualify for reps, everything is just tucked into that that one year. Let, let me sum it up a little bit here. Like when you have that reps, the cool thing is it turns everything active. It moves it to that side or moves everything to that bucket is one way of kind of thinking about it. I guess if I'm understanding where Jess is coming from, Jess's concern is like, all right, say next year we go off of reps. Does all those losses that we got in 2023 that turned active to use active because it's not more useful at that point, especially driving down their high W2 income, does that go away? Does it slide back to the passive and? If not, I guess what I'm reading into this is even if you're going on and off of rep status every other year, every third year, this can be still very beneficial because you have to work it in with your lifestyle. But is that kind of where you're going, Jess? Yeah, that is. And also as the client of an accountant, where do I look to see that the accountant really did put what used to be passive in the active, how you guys have all of your different schedules Like, how can I double check, essentially? Normally, that one, it does not really carry over. However, they usually provide a summary page before they show you the 1040, where it states, this is the total net operating loss carry over last year. So there's a page in there. There's a summary page included with a return that will show you your carry over. Okay, thank you. But that carryover wouldn't necessarily be on the 8582 form? Not all, because it's just one Big, but it does not break down which year and things like those. Normally, the summary form will give you more details as to what's the source of that loss. Oh, okay. But I don't necessarily have to keep track of the source of that loss, whether it's property A, B, or C for that year. The accountant is supposed to keep track of it. Correct, yep. Is that complicated if I switch accountants all of a sudden? Not really. (laughs) Or as long as you have your previous year's tax returns until the time that from the time that you started claiming those net operating losses. Okay. Gotcha. I guess I got a similar question to that. So I'm moving over and my understanding is a lot of y'all use the same software, right? So do you guys ask the old CPA for that file or is it they're like, screw you guys, we're just going to give you this paper <laughs> format without any of the formulas. Like when you change dentists or doctors and they're like, here's all your x-rays. Oh. Yeah, so technically they could ignore or reject us that way like they'll say we already you already have your returns so you cannot because that's their, that's still their property that their working papers and whatever's in their system so they have their choice if they will give it to us or give it to the new CEPA or not 
So this is a simplistic question then, Ari. When, let's say, if I transfer over to you guys, what are the specific things in my email that I tell my accountant to please include? So just, of course, any depreciation schedule that they have, plus the net operating loss, net capital loss, that schedule that they have. So only those two will be enough. Okay. Can you guys send me that like form letter and then I'll circulate that within our group because I might need that too. Because technically it's the clients. They just need to ask for it the right way or he'll just ask Mm -hmm. for it. But technically Mm -hmm. it's the client's property. Yeah, that would be super helpful. Thank you. Link, can I start answering the other? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you can. Yeah, go go ahead. I guess this one is another question from Jess. So I pay my kids via disregarded LLC. The LLC owns an active short-term rental business. The kids are 19 years old and they made about 3000 last year. Since I don't have an S or C corporation, I can't make them employees, correct or incorrect. Do I need to issue them 1099 SE and ECs? Just a follow-up question, Jess. How much did they make last year? Is it just the whole $3,000 or this is on top of what you paid them? No, they made about seven grand. They actually had a W-2 job from McDonald's and a bakery. And then they also had some babysitting lawn care jobs. And then this is just from the turnovers that they did from my Airbnb. Got it. Basically, that 3000 this 3000 came from the Airbnb, correct? Correct, yes. So in that case, since the amount is still lower than the filing threshold, which is 13000 you do not have to issue them their own W-2 and it, they can be classified as salaries under your under the books of your business. So you don't have any reporting responsibility. And the good thing about this is since it's below threshold, they are still exempted from any social security tax and you could just claim them directly as salaries expense in the books of your disregarded LLC. I thought that was if they were younger than 18, but they're 19 so now this one it still applies. However, if it if they are already more than the more than the standard deduction threshold, then that's the time that we, we have another way of presenting it where in, instead of showing it as salaries, we convert them as advertising expense so that you can still claim the full ex- three thousand dollar expenses. Okay, but even if I I issue them a ten ninety nine and pay them as a ten ninety nine, is it still beneficial is that is there any more benefit for me doing that versus issuing them a quote-unquote salary actually the only benefit is it's less admin costs on your end because if you issue them a salary you need to go through your payroll provider and then your payroll provider needs to calculate all the withholdings and things like that but if you if you still want to go the declaration way and you want to issue 1099 and easy again you can go that route because they are lower they you can go that route and they don't need to file on their own because they are still below the filing threshold of 13000 last year. I actually do have my kids file so that they can contribute to their Roth IRAs, though. Got it. So, I um, see. Okay. So as administrative things, it only costs me 50 bucks or something like that to, to do the 1099. So that is way cheaper than going through a payroll service. Correct. Yeah. Actually, it's only $1 for the software that we know. They will only charge you a dollar per 1099. So if I move over to you guys, you will only charge me $1 for a 1099? Well, there's no additional fee. You just need oh. to pay the fee of the software, which is a dollar per... Sorry. I... There's no additional fee of helping you issue the 1099. You just need to reimburse us from the $1 software fee. I see. Okay. Thank you. 
Next one is I transferred my SEP into a self-directed solo 401k. It has its own bank account, etc. Is there any additional accounting that I need to keep track of? No, because the solo 401k will be the one. The, your third-party administrator will be the one responsible in declaring all the Form 5500 that you need and things like that. Yeah, actually adding to what Arby just said about the 5500, it's important to make sure someone's filing that. So sometimes a lot of these um, retirement brokerage, they don't want to take care of that because there's a lot of liability with filing it late. So they put that responsibility on you. So you just have to make sure who's going to handle the, the annual filing form called a 5500 easy. Yeah, I think you only have to file that if you have a certain amount. It's yeah. something yep. mm-hmm. 50 or something like that. So if you have anything less than that, you don't have to file it. Correct. And your provider monitors that one. So they normally prompt you if you need to file the Form 5500. Easy. Okay. I just left my provider. Now I'm, that's why I'm wondering what do I do with all of these entities that have been set up to sponsor mm-hmm. the solo 401k? What happened to them? I, I understand this is a more of a law question. But I'm just wondering, do I still have to file those now or pay the LLC fee, yearly annual fee to keep the LLC going? Again, at least on the tax side, no added administrative burden because you're just considering your assets are below the threshold of filing. Correct. Yes. And then lastly, with long-term rentals, paying off home interest and taxes are deductible. What about paying the principal down? Is that tax deductible? Is there a difference if it's a short-term rental? So this is just mostly... The principal, if you do not do any tax strategies, taking the question itself, paying the principal down is not non-deductible, whether it's short-term or low rental. There are ways to make it deductible, but we could discuss further on the side. And te- just... technically, the principal is your depreciation. Correct. Okay. Yeah, I was just wondering, because when I try to calculate the ROI for each individual property, obviously, I use what I have to pay down for principal in that calculation. I figured that it was that, but I just, no one's ever really told me that. So thank you. I, I never heard that 1099 thing is $1 before, but I just wanted to also ask in there, like a lot of investors investing in these syndications and private placements, they do tend to rack up a lot of K-1s. Is it, how much does that usually cost? It's, is it just off the states or is it off the form? What's your kind of fee structure on that one? So for the K-1 side, generally for a lot of our individual clients, we first have them fill out the questionnaire. There are certain kind of factors that we do take into consideration, whether it's the number of K-1s, the number of rental properties. Generally speaking, for the K-1s, we only have roughly a $50 increase. And this is more so from a range of K-1s that you have. Actually, most recently, I did talk with an individual from Foom who I believe says that his current account was charging anywhere from 250 per K ones. So that's basically our pricing. But then we always defer back to that questionnaire. So if anyone would be interested, I'm more than happy to share that with you as well. And I think what's also good to just highlight here, which is in correlation with the 1099 is when RB mentioned that we can just do that for you for the 1099 portion. If you decide to move forward with us on like the tax package, it's essentially all inclusive. So if there are certain minor kind of forms that we have to do that obviously won't take too much time, we'll take that We'll take that into consideration and help you assist those as well. And similar to a lot of the FOOM members where the K-1s are coming in late, perhaps after the filing deadline, we'll help you even with the taxing sessions and stuff. So our tax package really is designed in a way where we go through throughout the year, uh, keep you guys updated on per quarter basis to make sure that you're in check with current what your taxes are looking like. And then we can adjust any strategies that might be necessary for changes throughout the year. Okay, because I guess uh, the situation that I run 
into with my current situation mm-hmm. is, for example, I say, hey, I want to, I have some questions about my, my 2023 tax return. And it was November, right? It was trying yeah. to get in a little bit early. And they said, oh, it's going to be like X amount of dollars to talk to this accountant for an hour. And I talked to him and I had none of my questions answered. (laughs) Just rest assured. So basically our tax package is basically like an annual pricing. So basically what that means is on top of these quarterly planning sessions that we'll proactively do, we, it also comes with ad hoc consultations. The one thing we only just request is to send the details via email first, because if things can be answered through there, it'll be much faster. But if we think that there's some complexity around it, we'll always schedule a consultation or a planning session with you. And that's not with any additional costs. Okay. As someone who has dated around and used multiple CPAs, many of which I'm sure a lot of you listen to their podcasts, great podcasters, right? Just a lot of the, the dynamics get to a point where a lot of people on podcasts and YouTube videos, et cetera, just kind of marketers and they're just white labeling other firms to do their actual servicing. My MO has always been like work with people you like or trust. And these guys are the guys who pick up the call. I don't phone call anybody i you know respect their time and send them an email first like ray house can you get anything done in a timely fashion and cost effective form unless you send an email these days but like i what i found for a lot of firms it was just some random guy who was doing my tax return and the people who you initially interacted with are long gone and now you're seeing it right you see a lot of these guys will have more directories they so they've changed their monetization they will use their brand name and then refer you out to somebody in their state. And then they just click that referral feed, which is how they monetize their influence. Great for them, bad for the client. And I think the first thing working with these guys that I picked up was with like, you guys wanted to talk to me every quarter. I'm like, I never had that happen. It's like the spouse that like, once they get into a new relationship, they actually go on dates. Like I never had that before. But yeah, that's the experience that I've gotten. And, and some of the, the early full members have gotten that experience here lately. But but yeah, let's get back to the questions, right? So you don't have to mm-hmm. pay $500 an hour to get the answers. <laughs> this one, this question is regarding my previous primary resident of residence of seven years that was transferred to a rental. My CPA states that I can sell the home now and utilize the capital gain free sale rule the two out of five years since there was a change of use, primary to rental. Is this accurate or wrong? If wrong, can you provide reference to review or show my CPA? Maybe an added question to John. Did you live in that property? For the last five years, did you live in in that property for at least two consecutive years? If yes, then I'm How's the right word? Yeah, your CPA might be wrong on this one. Yeah. So yeah, I lived in it for seven years Mm -hmm. and then I moved to a new house and made that a rental and it's only been a rental for a year and a half. And so when I discussed my potential option of selling it Mm -hmm. because the equity was growing so quickly to acquire that tax-free capital gain, she said, no, you can't do that because you've made the change of use. You It went to a rental. And, and so basically she's saying, I'd have to move back into the house mm. and then live in it for two more years. And I just moved out of the house in 2020. Yeah, I'm not sure because maybe it depends on the risk as to how much risk they can take. But technically, you can still claim that $250,000 or $500,000 capital gains free sale rule for as long as within the last five years, you were in that property for at least two consecutive 
Yeah, so Arby's correct in this. I think he's just being too nice to say that your account's wrong. Okay. Yeah, yeah. everything it, I listen to, other podcasts, other tax accounts, yeah. say the same thing. Yeah. And so I thought this would just be a good way to get another CPA's. Yeah. Uh, the the thing with your CPA saying that you need to move back in, that's actually going to make it worse because then now there's like a ratio rule we have to follow. But there is a special rule where if you lived in it first and then you rent it out for up to three years, technically, or you sell it within the three years after moving out and turning into a rental, you still qualify for the full 250000 per person. Or if you're married, then you get 500000 Now, that's only a special rule if you lived in it first the whole time, and then you rented it out, say, for two years, and then you try to sell it. And normally when I recommend this to client is that rent it out for a maximum of two years after you moved out. Because you want to have a whole year to make sure that you clean up the place, put on the market in case it takes a little bit, a little bit of time to sell. You have at least a whole year to try to sell it because once you hit that three-year mark, then you lose out on the full exclusion. It's not worth trying to push the rent to get two and a half years worth of rent. You want to just probably get two years worth of rent at most. Okay. Thank you. I will say piggybacking on this question, same rule. If you're living in your primary residence and the property has appreciated 500 grand. For some of you guys, that's not much because you guys live in multi-million dollar houses. I would think about selling it and moving into somewhere else. Now I get the whole pain in the butt of moving, but this is really the only get out of free jail, no tax kind of things. And it's like the whole way you're supposed to do it is just step up half a million increments without paying the taxes on it. You, The reason why I say this, like recently we've had some clients with older parents, their property goes up from a quarter million to well over a million and a half. And if they sold the property, they got to pay taxes on all the gains minus 250 or 500, which is a huge deal. Now they're like a prisoner in their house that they have to stay there because they don't have the money to pay the taxes on it. And that could be all eliminated by conscientiously every five years or whenever that appreciation goes up that threshold, just move to a different house. If not, we'll move to the next question. I have two SF rentals and two syndications. Can I attend a class seminar, perhaps the Las Vegas retreat in, in, coming up, and deduct the trip costs, hotel, gas, food, et cetera, and the fee? I so, guess it depends, um, right? Right now, just by answering this, of course not. However, there is a loophole or there's a strategy that we can implement. Establish consulting LLC management LLC or a holding company LLC wherein you are the general partner. And then once you've established that LLC, charge your SF rentals consulting fee, a minimum consulting fee that will effectively convert some of the passive income to active income. But the good thing about that is since now you have your own LLC, you can deduct all of this like the seminar fees, the trip costs, hotel, gas, food, and etc. And also you can deduct your own home office expenses. You can even capitalize your car in that LLC that you've established and depreciated. However, Ari, how does that LLC make money? You have to pay yourself or pay that LLC, right? Yes. So this one, the LLC will charge the two San Francisco rental properties, minimum, we can term it consulting fees. In that way, there is an income that is flowing from the two rental properties flowing to that LLC. What kind of bookkeeping do you need from that? Do you need to set up payroll for that? No need for if it's, because this one is just minimal, right? 
for as long as the transactions are minimal per year, you could just keep a record, an Excel file of all of the expenses related to the attending class or like all expenses related to the syndication investment that you have. Keep it on an Excel file, keep a receipt of that one, and then summarize it at the end of the year. And then you just have to make sure that your other entities that actually made money Correct. gave you at least $1 more than your expenses, right? Because you don't Correct. want $10,000 mm-hmm. of expenses constantly every year. It's, it would just... Yep. However, the hobby loss rule, you could mitigate it because as you're doing something to generate revenue, that's enough reason for the IRS to not consider it as a hobby. Because there are businesses wherein they are incurring losses for 5-10 years, but still they are not considered a hobby because, again, of the business plan. Like, you're doing something to generate a revenue. It may not be now, but it's in the future. And that consulting LLC you're talking about should just, for ease, could be a disregarded LLC. It Correct, yep. Mm-hmm. have to be okay. Yep, that, and also... We don't want it to generate an income because if you you stay as an LLC and it generates a high value of income, there will be self-employment tax. So it needs a coordination between you and your CPA, how much you will charge your rental properties, claim all of these expenses that you cannot claim if you just stay as is right now. John, did I answer your question? Yes. Yes. Thank you. So basically what you're saying is I can't deduct based on having two single family rentals and this is helping me learn and improve my rentals. But the way around it, the loophole is to create a LLC as a consulting, charge my two rentals a certain fee. Then I can deduct, for example, the upcoming trip to Vegas, Correct. those costs. Mm-hmm. When you say it like that, then it sounds bad. But sorry, sorry <laughs> what was that, John? I was going to follow up was, can I do this after the fact? Because... I'm already uh, creating fees to get to the Vegas get together and I won't be able to generate an LLC till afterwards. See the thing, this is the reason why we coordinate with our clients every quarter to tax plan for strategies like this. Definitely 20 it's too late, but in 2024, you can still do this one for as long as you establish the LLC within the first quarter of the year or even the first half of the year, you'll be fine. But, okay. but RV, can't he like book this discharge for him and his family go to Lake Tahoe and have a little board meeting and then book it as yeah. a startup costs. And then when they make the LLC this year, next year, then bring those receipts in. Yeah, you could also do that. The only thing is the establishment of the LLC because it's too, it's already too late. They already passed. So all of these strategies can be enabled. That works out because this trip is in 2024. Nice. And so all of the fees <laughs> are in 2024. Yep. So, so remember what- to create your LLC. <laughs> yeah. And can I deduct those fees? Because usually that's a couple hundred to a thousand to just create the LLC as well yeah. as the accounting fees to handle. Correct. Uh, However, just mention to your CPA to cl- not classify it as a startup cost or organization cost because there's a threshold or limit as to how much you can deduct on that one. Just remember, it's better if you term it as legal fees so that you could claim 100% of all of those fees that you paid as deduction. Okay. Thank you. Ari, as a follow-up question in the same similar thing with John, I I know Lane said something about, it doesn't sound good when you say it like that, but one way can we look at it is by doing this setup with a consulting LLC, you are now taking your passive income from your 
long-term rentals, which normally would be locked until you can have other passive income, passive losses. You can, that's a hack or a a way to unlock that passive income from the short-term rentals, especially for people who are still working a W-2 job. But it always has to be for the same thing, right? So if I set up a consulting fee for real estate, it's not like I can now take a medical conference, which is something... Oh, yeah, definitely. It all Uh, has to be related. Correct, yep. My suggestion is, if it's not related, still run it through the credit card or debit card of the LLC and then coordinate with your CPA at the end of the year because there are some that could be treated as indirect expenses and you could deduct them. Yes, another advice. That's awesome. That's the kind of question that I would actually want to call my CPA about, but for some reason, some Mm. can't answer that question. (laughs) Who are these guys? They'll take you on dates too, Jess. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But this is the general ideal of you change your tax, you change your facts, right? If this expense was needed and customary and reasonable to you in the pursuit of a dollar, then it's a reasonable expense and therefore could and should be taken as a deduction. You got to change your facts around your expenses to be able to work it in this way. Of course, none of us telling you, anybody here, to doing anything fraud or anything like that, but in some way or form, a lot of these deductions that you guys spend personally should probably be expensed through a business. I mean, that's what business owners do. And this is why they drastically grow their net worth a lot higher than guys without businesses who are working W-2 day jobs at a salary. Yeah. And I want to add to this is that with planning sessions, that's where you're going to get most of your tax savings is through tax planning sessions and not really when you prepare the tax return. Because the way you want to see is like when you prepare a tax return, it's backward looking. We're just reporting something that happened last year. While with tax planning, it's forward looking. We're trying to figure out where you stand now and what can we do by the end of the year to help reduce your taxes overall. So some of these questions like just asking and then I think John was asking too, these are something that could be tackled during tax planning sessions and then we could actually act on it early on during the year before it's too late when the year is already over i know some topics that were discussed here were like solo 401ks and like legal like forming llc's the good thing about us is that although accounting audit and taxes still are bread and butter we've added on a lot of other areas that help benefit and complement these tax planning sessions as well. So for example, we do have a legal leg that can do a lot of these formation of LLCs. We can even do like trust formations as well as there and also can even help you with the solo 401k. So what we like to always tell our clients is everything starts with the tax planning. And if we need to involve other parties as well, we have many resources under the same umbrella, which makes it easier for a lot of our clients to just have a few main point of contacts within one firm rather than having to jump through different firms for different needs. So that's just something I wanted to highlight because I know those two topics were discussed earlier in the Q&A. And that's where like most lawyers don't understand the tax side and vice versa. But in this case, if the dean's conversation or CPA and attorney are speaking the same language, in this case, the same firm, you can get a lot of synergies and cut a lot of billable hours out of this and ultimately get the best situation for you. Right. Definitely collaborate internally for any needs within different uh, segments. Those are the worst, right? You get on those conference calls with this lawyer, that CPA, this lawyer, and you're like, or at least speaking from the client's perspective, like, oh God, you guys are killing me here. These like billable rates just piling up 2 to 3x on me. You guys are just milking it. But yeah, 
I think going um, back to the questions, pros and cons of completing a rent to own sale from John. It says, are there pros and cons to completing a rent to own sale regarding one of his SF rental properties, or is it best to just complete a normal sale? So this one mostly tax advice, not a financial advice. It doesn't matter whether it's a rent to own sale or just a complete normal sale, at least tax wise. I'll step in here. This is more of a strategy question. If your tenant thinks that they're ever going to buy your house from you, ain't going to happen. If not, they would have bought a house a long time ago. Check their credit score. They're probably just wasting your time. But even if they do, it's, I think that's more most times how these kinds of situations go. But in most cases, it's just better to sell it on the open market. But of course, you want the, how the tax numbers play out. That's where you talk to these guys. But you see how these things work. It's strategy first. I think you clients need to get that first know which way you're going to head with it and then go to the CPA with, hey, we're going to head this way or this way right? and tell me the diff- the way the numbers work. John, any follow-ups to that one? No, if you guys are clear. So basically I have a single family home and the tenant broached the subject like they would be interested in doing a rent to own. And I've heard of the concept and was just curious if there's any pros or cons to completing that type of a transaction versus just completing a regular sounds like Lane. You're in agree of the opinion. Just sell it completely and be done with it, and take those profits and move them to the next deal compared to the alternative. Yeah, it, it because it's chump change. What you're talking about under half a million, million dollars. I mean, you do these kinds of seller financing things if you're talking five million, ten million dollar purchase of a business, right? Then it may make sense to delay the income coming on your side. But in these this cases, the, the brain damage caused by working with one of these guys is just way too much that to get the, the benefit of delaying the income. And of course, it goes more on your personal side. If you're high income, then maybe you want to delay taking this income through a delayed sale, which is a form of these one of arrangements is. But it is more of a personal situation there, but more than likely not worth the brain damage. I follow. Yeah. I'm I'm not high income. Like you're saying, it's just probably easier just to do a straight sale and be done with it in one transaction. But yeah, these guys have to look into your other, like how much income was your AGI at to really adequately talk it through. We just don't have the time to go into that level of detail here, but that would be a kind of a good question to go on your personal console for that type of thing. I agree. Thank you. We asked, answered this question maybe, but the question was, are there any tax advantages for creating an LLC specifically for alternative investments, not our active real estate. Is it easy to write off expenses like it is for active real estate? Is it not treated as active business? Yeah, same answer a while ago. It's beneficial to set up an LLC, like a consulting LLC, holding LLC, or management LLC. So you could claim some of your uh, personal expenses as a deduction to your active income. Um, you guys have good questions here. What's nice about doing like a one-on-one where somebody understands your whole situation is like the why, what's the why behind the question? What are you trying to get at here? And sometimes we can, you know, expedite the solution. I'm saying. But yeah, my question was regarding using one of your HELOC or your IBC to fund an investment and more importantly, like what level of tracing must be done to include your interest that you paid as deductible down at the end of the the year, such as you're not going to get a 1098 like you would from the interest paid on like a home loan or an investment property. How do you trace that? What's the best way to to make sure you cover your bases on that and 
protect yourself. So with interest tracing, this is something where you actually, it's very important to do. And this is really in a case if there's an IRS audit, if you're taking like a HELOC out of your, say, one rental property to buy a new rental property, you really have to show the paper trail where it's easy to follow. So let's say you take a HELOC out for $200,000, use as a down payment on a new rental. The new rental should show at least a $200,000 down payment to show that the money's going to that new rental for it to be deductible. So interest tracing is really important, um, especially if the IRS audits you. And the way to make it easy for the IRS, you got to make sure that the full funds are being used for that new rental property. Because if they see you pull, say, $200,000 out and only use $100,000 for a down payment and they don't know where the other $100,000 went to, that they're not going to allow the full interest to be deducted. So definitely do your paper trail very accurately. I see. And to follow up on that, if you were to do the same for a real estate syndication and you pull 50 out of your HELOC and you put 50 into a deal, that is that enough to just show that it's pretty easy to show. You can show the check written out to the syndication. So just keep track of those checks and the dates and everything. Because, And this is just really in case there's an audit, then that's where you really want to show it. But is it really that necessary? I don't think anybody is here is taking 100 grand out and only placing 50. or And therefore, it's like, where the heck did the other 50 go? I think everybody here is pretty much using it for what it really is. Good. In, in, yeah. Hopefully. hopefully but... <laughs> Is it really necessary to like write a, a memorandum of this is what I did on yeah, this day? I, I would suggest that. And just stick it in the file? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. you'll forget. Uh, yeah, I guess so. You'll forget, right? Because yeah. if you, if you think audited. about it, audits don't happen until two or three years down the line. And in two or three years, you're going to forget a lot of stuff anyways. You got to make sure that you do keep accurate records of everything. And this is where IRS comes in and they just want to see the proof. That's all. The bur- Really, the burden of proof is on you as a taxpayer. So you definitely want to be able to be prepared and show, okay, I took this money out. I put it into this investment. That's why I'm taking a deduction for it over here. Yeah, that's actually a good example of, I think several years ago, they said that you weren't able to use HELOCs off your primary residence and deduct that interest expense. But Mm -hmm. in this case, we are taking that as a business expense. Correct. And that's the way you, if you want to call it a loophole, it Mm -hmm. is what it is. That that's the way you get around it. So a prime example, if you change your facts, you change your tax. Yeah. But Arlie, where, where would you report that if they took a HELOC out and they took that money and put into a syndication, where would you deduct the interest? So initially you can't, but however, if you, again, if you have that LLC, you could put it under Put it under the LLC? Interest. Okay. Can it go under investment interest under Schedule A? No, it's because the source no. is HELOC. I see. Okay. I'll tell you what I do for like my infinite banking is another source. I'll take a loan from my life insurance. And then every year I just send an email to my life insurance provider and ask them, hey, how much interest did I rack up last year? And I just stick that in the file and book it as an expense on my LLC, like RV saying. That's how I take care of that one, for example. It's a little bit after the fact, but I want to get the total amount at the end of the year. For example, that that memorandum, the the document. If you don't, if you do that, and you want to make yourself a document showing your intent on that loan and the amount and when it was done, what all needs to be in there to cover your basis? Date it should amount. show dates, amounts. That's pretty much the main thing. What account it went into, where it went to. Perfect. Thank you. I, I think the main thing there, there was some level of thought that went into it, mainly to remind you. 
down the road several years later, if the very small chance of Git being audited, that it triggers you and it just looks better too. I think fans. So this works really well if you use all your IBC money in syndications or down payments or whatever, but it doesn't work well if you use some of your IBC money for a syndication and the next year you use it to lease a Lamborghini, that's a business expense, or do other things with it. Because then your interest rolling over in the following years, you don't, you'd have to then take all the time in the world to separate what is the interest from the $100,000 I put in the syndication versus the 50000 that I put on, a de- on something else. Yeah. So you definitely need to figure out the allocation. So if you only use a portion of that HELOC loan for investments and the other portion was for personal use, then the interest that's associated to you have to take that same ratio that was allocated for whatever you use the proceeds for. And that's our responsibility to keep track of as Yeah, exactly. Um, you'd have to let your accountant know of how much went into investments versus how much was personal use. And then they would have to keep track of it every single year for you. And yet you, you might have to remind the accountant every year that of the split just to be safe. I think that kind of reminds me of some people who do rep status notes on what they did. I, on the other hand, have everything in my Google calendar as a record source. That's just what I do. But I mean, where do you guys fall on that? As far as like record keeping for like your hours of what you're doing, if you're making a run for that rep status. Actually, we have a template in like our clients just put their hours or what you can do as well is every month, just at least an hour, try to summarize, at least try close to the actual hours that you spent. Try to summarize it on one Excel file so that if in case you get audited, you'll just show that Excel file of monitoring the hours. So I have a disregarded holding entity that owns a bunch of other disregarded LLC entities that then owns single family home rentals. So that's all passive income. My accountant one year filed this holding LLC, filed it as a partnership with me which then means that I still have to get all of the information, the expenses, all of that stuff before April 15 to him. But then I don't personally file until October with the extension. But then the next year, they Mm. didn't file it as a partnership. So I was really confused. And it's, again, one of those things that I, quote unquote, talked to an accountant about, and I didn't really get an answer. Just to answer your question, it's... If you file as a partnership, you will be subjected to another set of rules, which is for partnership purposes. So if it's a disregarded entity, it's better, at least for us, it's better to file it under your property so that you'll only be subjected to one set of rulings, which is the individual tax rules. So it's better tax-wise to file that as a partnership? Is that what I was hearing correctly? File it as a disregarded entity, which is... Part of your 1040. Do not file a separate return, which is the 1065 return. So do not file it. File it as a combination to your individual taxes. The second year that they did it, that's the correct one compared to they filed their own 1065. There's a K1 that was issued that will flow to your 1040. Yes. Better. Okay. Because, yeah, because they wanted me to file a 1065. Correct. And then I questioned it because I don't know why I had to do this twice. And so the next year they said, oh, okay, we'll dissolve your partnership. That is strange because usually with the partnership, there has to be two or more owners involved. Weird if it's just yourself, because then technically you're not a partnership. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I, I, just, I, I, don't I think s- they fouled it wrong the first time. And then they knew that they fouled it wrong. So then they fixed it the second year. Because that first year of you filing as a partnership, you declared to the IRS that you want to be treated as a partnership. So I'm not sure. Maybe to... they declared me as that I wanted to be treated as a partnership. But the following year, I actually said, I don't want to be in a partnership with my own LLCs that are already. Yeah. Did they charge you for that partnership return? You know, the way their fee structure is, it's just like this big, you pay a big lump sum and then whatever they do, they deduct it from that sum. And then they tell you, you got to put a big lump sum back in. So oh. I don't know. I see. No comment. That's why they do it that way. <laughs> right. But they, when I said that, when I called them the second year and I said, Hey, I don't want to do this 1065 thing. I don't think I have to. And they said, okay, now you have to file dissolution of the partnership. And they did not charge me for that. Yeah, that's strange. Yeah, maybe book a, co- a consult on that one. I only got these guys for a little bit longer here because I'm paying by the hour. Um, <laughs> okay. And I got three of them, so it gets Thanks. expensive here. But there's a big debate over doing an S-Corp or C-Corp. I, th- I guess maybe some of the understanding that we know here is like one uses a Schedule C, one uses a Schedule E, where it seems like and correct if we're wrong here, the Schedule C, which goes with the C-Corp, allows us to be a little bit more liberal on some of the expenses, maybe use that Augusta rule where the Schedule E is a little bit more audited traditionally. But maybe, yeah, take that and S-Corp, C-Corp, when do you use one or the other for people's LLCs? So in general, for real estate investment, an LLC is usually good enough. You usually don't want to be an S-Corp if you're having passive activities, because I think there's a rule with S-Corps where if you have more than like 25% of your revenue coming from passive, you don't qualify for an S-Corp anymore. So in general, being an LLC for real estate investments itself is should be good enough. I guess what point would you trigger doing a C-Corp or S-Corp? I wouldn't recommend a C-Corp in general. C-Corp is mainly for if you're a startup, if you're looking for funding, things like that. Usually tech, it would be C-Corps. But for if you're just like a self-management company, just managing your own rental properties, then an LLC should be fine. Yes, maybe I'm poking and prodding here a little bit. Then why do people on YouTube keep telling us why we should make do a C-Corp then? For real estate industry business. But let, let's say it's an LLC that's generating an income. The time that you should convert into an S-Corp is after all the tax strategies, like revenue minus expenses, after all the tax strategies, if it still generates a net income, it's better to convert into an S-Corporation to prevent self-employment taxes. Now, as to when is the time to convert from an LLC to C-Corporation or S-Corporation to a C-Corporation, if your bracket is already at 37%, meaning like once you factored in the income of the S corporation or an LLC, combined it with your other W-2 income, it if gives you 37% of federal taxation, then that's the time to convert into a C corporation because C corporations are fixed at 21% rate federal-wise and 10% rate in the uh, state-wise or wherever state you are. So it keeps your taxes down. However, once you are under a C corporation, monitor it closely with your CPA because any withdrawals that you do out of the C corporation are considered dividends and it will be taxed at your ordinary rate. So that's usually how we advise our clients, especially if they have a business that suddenly went up or suddenly had a huge amount of income. But to Fuchs' earlier point, 
if you're investing in real estate, you shouldn't be paying a high taxes anyway. Correct. Because real estate, normally, they always generate losses because of depreciation, which is why it's better to stay on there. What if you have one year where you have a huge amount of depreciation recapture from one of the deals because it, it did really well? Maybe that year we'd switch it to a CRS Corp or I guess Thomas No, talk still, because that one is classified as capital gains and any recapture are capped at 25% uh, taxes. They don't go up to your rate of 37%. So it's still beneficial even if there's an exit in one of the deals or there's a sale of property. We did a video on that mm-hmm. maybe about a year ago for people listening that went over this year washing your your gains and it comes out, you got to pay taxes on it, but it's a lot lower rate and we call this tax efficient. But if you want that video to go over that, let us know. I think it's at thewealthelevator.com slash tax page there. But the last topic we wanted to at least touch upon was this short-term rental loophole, a way to potentially pushing income from the passive side to the active side. But maybe quickly go over that, how your plans uh, work that in for them. Yeah. So for the short-term rental loophole, this is also called the Airbnb loophole. For this to work, you have to make sure that your average number of days being rented out is seven days or less. So you take all of your bookings. As long as the average booking is less than seven days, then you could qualify for the short-term rental loophole. And instead of being passive, it's now considered active. So then what you want to do is take large depreciation with this. So this is where you do the depreciation segregation, where instead of depreciating your the home over 27 and a half years, we actually break it down into like pieces, whereas like the tub is depreciated over five years, the cabinets seven years, floors 15 years. So by doing that, you're going to get a really high depreciation the first year. And because it's considered active, then it could go against your ordinary income. So your W-2 income, things like that. So this is where you could potentially almost wipe maybe all of your W-2 income, depending on how much it is or half of it, because now it's considered active. So this is where the Airbnb loophole comes in and you pretty much have to own the property itself, Airbnb it out and make sure that it's being rented seven days or less. That's like the main rule. But then this is a constant battle, right? Once you do it once, you can't do it the next year or? Oh, because you're using all your depreciation the first year. So then you might start showing a profit. And this is where when you see on YouTube, they say do a new property every single year. So you keep on doing it every single year. But then I'm not sure how feasible that really is. Sounds like a pain to me. Yeah. Or you have an option actually. So it's either take it all in one year or divide it within the next five years. So again, it's crucial with your CPA to plan every quarter, which is the best one for you. Like to just divide the whole cost that was cost segregated within the next five years or just take it all this year with that we're getting to the end here ray fook rv folks here's to 2024 if you guys want to get a hold of these guys reach out ray's probably going to be the main point of contact from here thank you all for coming and if you guys like this let us know we'll do another one of these things I'll put the contact on thewealthelevator.com slash tax. If you guys are listening to this on YouTube or the podcast, probably this little podcast too. You guys can go to there. But yeah, thanks everybody for coming. Awesome. Thank you.